Bienvenidos a la mofeta. That is Spanish for welcome to the skunk. Why do I come to you today speaking Spanish? Hmm? What a curious thing to do for an English language podcast. Well, I'll tell you why. Because I'm feeling particularly like a fiesta at the moment. I just crushed four tacos from a delicious taqueria up the street. Two of these tacos were like stewed beef. Very good. The other two were El Pastor, the king, El Rey, of all taco meats. It wears the corona. Sorry, I'm going too far now. Um, don't you love it when people, <laughs> like, use the sort of language that, like, a Mongolian warlord would use uh, after raising some Eastern European town to the ground in the 12th century? Right? I crushed it. I, the great Khan crushed and annihilated all that came before me. Chicken tacos, steak tacos, chips, salsa, all of it. I bended it to my will. My hungry maw, it fell before me and I devoured it all. Yeah, it's like, okay, you had lunch, I get it. <laughs> but we're all guilty of this sometimes. When you have a really good meal, you get excited. And I think sometimes it brings out sort of the primal warrior in us, right? I defeated that meal. I fucked up that that, that meatball sub. I hear people say stuff like that all the time. Dude, I fucked up those fish tacos at the beach. Like, you got in a fight with them and beat the shit out of them? I was like, no, I took them over to a bench and tried to keep a seagull away while I ate them as quickly as I could. But in your head, this is like, uh, you're like Beowulf or something. It's just going nuts on this food that you got. I get it. I get it because I feel that way right now. I feel victorious over those tacos. Mm, I win again. Anyway, welcome to The Skunk, everybody. This is not a show about tacos. Although, man, wouldn't that be fun? Like, a, you could call it Talkin' Tacos in the Taqueria. Talkin' Tacos in the Taqueria podcast, and then Taqueria is spelled like T-A-L-K-A-R-E-A. Anyone? Bueller? Yeah, we'll get in touch with my agent if you're interested in booking me for a live show, guys. I've got a lot more like that up my sleeve. I got a 20-minute set. Uh, on appetizers I'd love to give to you. <laughs> yeah, thankfully for you, this is not my stand-up set uh, all around food. This is actually The Skunk, the podcast where we discuss slightly more mature and adult things, although not always. Uh, today, though, we're going to try. We're going to talk about something very interesting. Um, it's something that I think, it's a real big like 20th century uh, sort of issue, but it has arisen again uh, in our modern times, in the early 21st century in which we now live. Uh, it's back, it's bigger than ever, and it's fascinating. Uh, the topic is populism. Now, I'm thinking about this because I recently heard a friend self-identify uh, as a populist. This person said that uh, she is basically, you know, when when asked to sort of describe her political leanings or her ideologies, I'm I'm just a populist, that's what I am. Which I found to be really odd because... Populism is not uh, an ideology <laughs> at all. So if asked to describe how, what you think about things or how you feel, giving the answer populism would be like saying, what would be a rough analog here? It would be like saying, what's your favorite type of food? And someone just said, eating. Like, okay, as a joke, maybe that makes sense, but eating is not a type of food, is it? It's a way of interacting with food. Uh, similarly, populism is not an ideology. It is a way of interacting with an ideology. Uh, yeah, I think I got there. That makes some sense to me. 
Uh, if you said, what's your favorite type of food? The answer should be tacos, an apple, you know, salad. If I you know, said, what is your political ideology? You would ideally begin to describe a set of policies or worldviews to me. But to say populism um, doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it got me thinking because we hear the word populism tossed around a lot these days. And uh, I'm wondering if maybe people just don't know what it means or maybe there's a disconnect. It seems that a lot of people seem to feel it sort of means like, oh, I'm just part of the popular party or, uh, you know, (laughs) we have the population behind us. Maybe that's what it is. Like, yes, I just agree with what most other people agree with. I'm a populist. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, Populism is basically a political approach, right, to, to something that, to a movement, really, that tries to get ordinary people to feel like they are the ordinary people and there are these others out there who are the elites who are making their lives worse. It is, uh, it is an appeal to making your base feel like they're the common man, the Joe on the street. You know, regular folk like you, you know who's always screwing you over? Those guys over there, <laughs> right? You can see this uh, in... People, you know, Occupy Wall Street was a populist type movement. It's all of us against the 1%. It's the 1% of the world's richest people that are holding the rest of us down. They're the problem. They're the ones responsible for this financial crisis. Um, Populism, a lot of times, is not so um, harmless as that, right? That amounted to a bunch of people basically getting really mad at the rich, uh, and it sort of fizzled out over time. I mean, people are still mad, and people still talk about the 1%. But that was like a milder type of political populism. Populism itself is a tricky thing, and I would never want to self-identify as a populist, you know, aside from the fact that it's meaningless because it's not an ideology. Identifying yourself as a populist is almost, in my view, like admitting that you are a little bit of a rube. I think populism is a sort of tricky, manipulative type of political movement that usually does not end well uh, for anyone, uh, for, not for the populists, not for the antagonists of the, of the populists. Uh, it usually ends in one way, which is the enrichment and uh, advancement of the leaders of the populist movement, and then everybody else can just go kind of, you know, die. <laughs> and the, way, the reason I say that is look at something like these classic populist movements Nazi Germany. The Nazis began as a populist movement. Uh, The same thing with the communist revolution in Russia. That was a populist movement. The communist revolution, the people's revolution in China, was a populist movement. And none of these places ended well for the majority of the people, right? The people who would would have called themselves the populists. Uh, And let me explain to you how this works. And maybe by the end of this episode, you too will understand why I don't think it's such a hot idea to be on board with populism, right? It's going to happen whether you like it or not. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book is to turn a movement into a populist movement. But you should arm yourself ahead of time intellectually with what that means and where that goes. Okay, so let's talk about it. The first thing I should say is that populism exists on the right and populism exists on the left and sometimes in the middle. So once again, this is just one of the reasons calling yourself a populist to describe your political ideology means nothing because it spans all the way from communists to fascists and everybody in between can be a populist here. What populism is, is it, it, again, it wants normal people to feel like you guys are the majority, right? We're all just normal guys, plumbers, electricians, people who drive trucks, and the people keeping you down are the wealthy, right? That would be a very left-wing type of... Um, 
populism, right? A lot of times populism breaks down uh, and works differently depending on who the audience is. Uh, and we'll get to right-wing populism in a minute, but the idea here being that like you are the majority, right? And you are being screwed over and shafted by the small minority of people over here who are really running the show. Uh, these people control everything in your life and it is because of them and their mansions or in their circles of government or in their deep state, whatever it is, they're calling all the shots and you have no power at all. But all of us together, if we get together and rise up, we can take back control of our society. What Marx would have called the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? This is why populism is often found in communist circles and political you know, parties, uh, because it is a type of populist movement as a whole, right? Communism is the majority worker taking back power from the capitalist owners of you know, factories and societies and giving it back to the people. That is the essence of left-wing type populism. I guess I'll describe left-wing type populism first because it, it's something that we're all very familiar with, and then I will turn the corner and we'll talk about right-wing and how they're different, but also how they're exactly the same in a lot of ways. So left-wing populism tends to focus on class struggles. It is almost always about laborers versus business owners, right? About poor people versus rich people. Um, you can see why Occupy Wall Street was basically a left-wing movement because it was poor normal people, popular people, the common man, right, against wealthy bankers who through their own ineptitude and risky uh, banking, you know, <laughs> practices and lending practices tanked our economy. A lot of people lost their homes. There was obviously a lot of trouble in our, in our country back in 2008 when uh, this whole thing happened and then very shortly thereafter when Occupy Wall Street started up. So that was a populist movement for the common man against these big financial institutions. They're the enemy, right? It's their fault that everybody's losing their homes. Get them. <laughs> it's these Wall Street traders and all these people who gamble with your money and with your retirement and trade and sell your mortgage 50 times until you know you wind up on the streets for whatever reason. Uh, it's them, right? In this particular populist movement, it is a class struggle. Poor people versus rich people. Um, that is why communism has always been such a populist thing, again, because it is always workers versus owners. And what happens here before we talk about right-wing populism? This is, this is why populism always ends poorly, in my opinion. So populism always revolves around a political movement, which will always have a political leader. Um, of course, in the communist revolutions in China and Russia, these two men would have been Lenin, right, and Stalin in Russia, and Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao in China. So in the beginning of these movements, you see a charismatic political leader who claims to speak for everyone. He is the common man, right? And he basically grows the movement, attracts followers. This guy speaks for you, farmers. This guy speaks for you, factory workers. We're going to rise up and we're going to finally do something that takes care of you instead of for these rich people or, you know, this, the aristocracy in Russia, right, or the monarchy. We're going to get rid of that, and we are going to take control, and it will be a dictatorship of the proletariat, meaning all of you. We are, we are all going to control this place. But what actually happens is during these movements, which tend to arise during revolutionary times, right, populism is a very revolutionary ideology because it is inherently angry, and it is inherently about overthrowing elites, right? Um, what will eventually happen here, time and again, is whoever the leader of this movement is will sort of become deified over time. 
it slowly morphs into a cult of personality, right? Even if this person was a peasant and they rose to the rank of leader of this party and then because of, the, the, of a revolution or, uh, you know, this party gets voted into power, they become the most powerful person in the country. Over time, as this person is working through the populist movement and becoming the face of the people, they become this icon. It becomes a cult of personality about them. And slowly but surely, every time, like clockwork, the people part of populism recedes to the background and fades away. This is why, and we talked about it in the George Orwell episode, places like communist, you know, Soviet Russia really were not for the people at all. Yes, the revolution was about the people, but the, the main characters and the players and the leaders of that revolution slowly became self-absorbed and self-obsessed and everybody catered to them. We have enormous flags in all of these countries with populist leaders, with the leader's face on it, right? Dear leader, B huge buildings with their portrait painted on it. It slowly becomes a cult in a sense. I mean, think about in Korea, you know, the, the Kim family, Kim Jong-un, Kim Il-sung, um, Kim Jong-il. All of these people are basically the royal family of this communist party. Now, if, if this was truly a communist country in the sense that somebody like Marx would have wanted it to be, this would not be led by a dynastic, you know, familial uh, leadership uh, who, you know, these people are looked at like gods on earth. Uh, this is obviously not a place that is being run by the proletariat, is it? This is a place that has its own form of bourgeoisie, to use the communist, you know, <laughs> parlance for all this kind of stuff, right? Communism is populism. A lot of isms in this episode. I, I am sorry. That's just what it is when you talk about this stuff. So the populism of communism is sort of doesn't, it's silly because what happens is you get rid of the capitalists, right? The populist movement is about hating the business owners and the capitalists. All right, so we get rid of them. Then we say, all right, well, we're going to give everything to the people. But the way we're going to do that is everything now just belongs to the government, right? So nobody owns any property. It's all just the government, which is our way of saying the people. But really, it's the government. But who runs the government? Well, we do, which means all of this shit is basically ours now. It doesn't really belong to the farmer. It doesn't really belong to the man toiling in a factory or the woman toiling in a sweatshop in these countries. It belongs to the wealthy uh, government officials and the party members. So you've just replaced one group of elites, quote unquote, and replaced them with yourselves. Now, this is almost always how populism ends. And this is why I would never self-identify as someone who's really into populism or thinks that this is a great way to get a movement off the ground. It is almost always a trick played on the proletariat, played on fools, honestly, who are so busy worrying about being mad at uh, the group of elites number one that they're willing to hand over the complete reins of power to group of elites number two as long as these people say that they speak for you and then act surprised when suddenly these people are just as bad, if not worse, and they just have slightly different policies, but your life is no different. You are still under the thumb of someone, only this person's just pretending to be your friend until you realize it's too late. You can see populism always leads to a cult of personality at the end of the day. There's a reason these countries all have these, you know, huge um, buildings with the leader's face painted on it, or everybody is, uh, you know, sings songs for the leader and to the leader, and it's all about the leader. Like, it very quickly becomes no longer about the people the minute this guy is in power. I would say this girl, but that doesn't happen that often. This seems to be a very male-dominated, you know, powerful man, strong man, authoritarian, autocratic uh, sort of thing that always winds up happening. 
Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party. That was a populist movement. That is another place where he was sort of billed to everyone in Iraq as a, a weird version of a sex symbol. You know, a lot of like photos of him looking hot, I guess, in his mind. You know, people were always adulating him for being so creative and so handsome. And it's like very, it's culty. It's culty, isn't it? That's the best word I can put it. In a modern Western democracy, recent presidents aside, we don't really look at our leaders uh, to be sex symbols or particularly um, fascinating celebrity types. We want them to do their job and then get the hell out after a couple of years. That's the way this should work. Now, of course, America has a tendency to fall into populist movements as well, both on the left and the right. Uh, I'm going to be fair about this. And we're going to talk about America at the end of this episode because there's a lot of other interesting things to cover before we get there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just the fact that knowing what we know of populism, that it is always a us versus them type of movement, it means it is always angry, like I said earlier. It is always bitter. Populism arises from embittered populations, people who are mad uh, because either they've lost their job or their home or they are, you know, this is kind of a right wing thing, but they're mad about immigrants, race issues, uh, things like that. And because of this, the populist leaders are usually demagogic type people who are good at whipping up crowds and preying on their fears and their anger that they already have. And they are able to bring themselves to power, not by saying, I have a great idea, let's build a new public park, or wouldn't it be wonderful if we funded the schools properly and teachers got a living wage? That's never the populist mindset. That's never the type of political movement that, that you know turns to populism. The, the ones that turn to populism are always, too many Mexicans are coming into your state and are taking your jobs, right? Bankers are ruining your finances and making it impossible for you to get ahead right? Atheists are taking over the country. Did you know the government is run by Jews, that small, tiny amount of people? And you know that we're a Christian nation. Well, we've got to do something about this, right? That's a populist movement. Uh, Sometimes they're couched in slightly friendlier terms, but the menace is always lurking underneath because it is always about fear and it is always about anger. That's the only way that populism works. Us versus the elite, the other group. Any political movement, that focuses itself on in-groups and out-groups is inherently negative. So it should be no surprise to you that the leaders of such groups tend to be assholes at the end of the day. They might be appealing assholes at first, but once they get a taste of the power and once they actually get to the position where they have control over things, very, very quickly we learn that the asshole doesn't care about you at all. You all work for him now, right? When When a populist leader assumes power in a country, it almost never results in the country doing better, but it always does result in that person's personal life getting a lot better. Bigger house, more money, they control things. There's a lot of corruption that usually goes into this. And people are singing songs, adulating them as a dear leader. In certain countries, they are literally elevated to the status of a god, capable of supernatural uh, feats. Like, you know, there's the famous stories about Kim Jong-un uh, played a perfect golf game. Every hole was a hole-in-one. Can you believe it? Well, yes, I can because it's him, and boy, that guy can do anything. Right. That's ludicrous, right? That's absolutely crazy. Nobody could play that golf game, not even the best golfers in the world, but Kim Jong-un apparently can. That actually might have been Kim uh, Jong-il, his father, that that one was about. Either way, you take a look at both of those guys, there's no way they're getting a hole-in-one uh, at the putt-putt on the side of the highway uh, much less on a you know, world-class 18-link golf course. 
forget about it. But you can see that that's what populism always leads to. The North Korea, in this example, no one's working for the people there. Their lives are miserable. They all exist to make one man happy. Everybody there, the generals, all the other people in government, all exist to make one very fat, very ugly man happy. Not the other way around. So we'll talk a little bit about right-wing populism now, because I've talked about communists, and we can understand how something that is like for the worker and the common people is by nature populist, and you can see why communism and communist regimes fall into this trap over and over again, and their charismatic leaders become despots over and over again, and communism pretty much never winds up being for the people in any country it's ever been tried in, uh, everywhere from Cambodia to Cuba, Fidel Castro. Um, it doesn't end well for the people. So let's talk about the right wing, like I said. Well, the obvious one here would be Hitler. He is someone who actually, you know, they started as a socialist party before Hitler got there. The German, and it was the United German Workers' Party or the National German Workers' Party uh, is what the Nazis were. Um, and it was a socialist organization that Hitler and his cronies sort of took over, kicked out all the real socialists, and soon it became socialist in name only, but they kept the populist language of socialism, and is that it, it appeals to you, the common German. Germany was going through a lot of economic trouble in the years after World War I, and Hitler was able to seize on people's unhappiness with the state of the country and focus everyone's anger on an outgroup. And we all know what outgroup that was. It was the Jews. And, of course, gypsies and homosexuals and stuff like that. But people who were not pure, strong, uh, heterosexual Germans, right? It was an ethnic-type in-group, out-group scenario. So earlier I said that you can identify populist movements on the left and the right in a few different ways. Left-wing populist movements, like I said, tend to focus on class. Rich versus poor, worker versus owner. And you can hear the language that they use and understand... Uh, exactly what we were looking at, because you're going to hear words like proletariats, workers, maybe words like exploitation, you know, ownership, production, that kind of thing. That, those are the, the, the terms and the language of a left-wing populist movement. Right-wing populist movements tend to focus on immigrants, race, racial hatred, you know, xenophobia, religious in-groups and out-groups. Uh, they are more identity focused, I guess, would be the way to put it. It's less about like, what's your place in society, class wise, and more about what's the color of your skin? What God do you believe in? What language do you speak? Where were you born? This is the purview of the right wing populist movements. So you can tell them by the language they use too, right? You're going to hear a lot of words like purity, usually racial or religious purity, dirty, Often, you know, those dirty Muslims, those dirty immigrants, stuff like that. Uh, taking advantage, that's a really big term you're going to hear a lot in right-wing populist movements. These people are just here to take advantage of us, right? Some poor, uh, you know, Mexican family who maybe came here illegally fleeing a cartel conflict in their home state. Uh, well, they're, they're not here to live a better life or to escape uh, certain death and torture and mutilation. They're just here to take advantage of you by, you know, taking a job that you wouldn't accept in 100 years. Yeah, they're taking advantage of you. Um, the other ones that you hear a lot in right-wing populism is like elites and academia. They hate academia. <laughs> it's funny. There are different institutions in society that a left-wing populist will always butt up against and that a right-wing populist will always butt up against, but they're different institutions. Left-wing populists tend to really butt up against banking, right? 
and any sort of financial institution because they perceive those people to be wealthy and of a higher class and ripping off everyone else who is of a lower class, right? The people who are not as rich as a bank, which is most of us. Those are the, the, the institutions that left-wing populism typically uh, has friction with and is mad at, right? Occupy Wall Street. They're pissed at investors, wealthy investors. Right-wing populism has a different institution that it hates, and it is higher learning. It's school, it's academia. These people, and it's not just America, this is all over the world, tend to butt heads with academics, professors, and intellectuals um, because academics, professors, and intellectuals are by nature more liberal, more accepting of ideas, more thoughtful, and more educated. Now, more educated, open, thoughtful, and liberal people do not tend to go in for xenophobia, anti-immigration stuff, uh, racial hatred, or religion. So right there, you have the perfect enemy of right-wing populists. You know, these people who run our institutions of learning, who are perceived to be brainwashing uh, young people into being tolerant and open, uh, you know, which is what the truth of it is. But what the right-wing populist will see here is that they're being brainwashed into being uh, unpatriotic, irreligious, right? They're learned to hate God in these people's opinion and uh, accepting of minorities and, you know, uh, the gay lifestyle and all these things that when you go to school, you chill out for the most part, most of us do, become more educated and more worldly. Well, this is not what the right-wing populist needs from its very strict ethnic in-group uh, population, right? You can't have people being tolerant and learning other ideas and bringing in other groups of people who believe in different gods or look different or speak a different language. The populist movement dies in that moment. They can't have that. So that's why Hitler and the Nazis, of course, are a right-wing populist movement, and they are able to focus the anger of the common German on Jews, gypsies, and gay people, as these are the people who are ruining society. Even though these are a tiny, tiny minority of our citizenship, it's all on them, all right? Everything that's wrong in your life is their fault, and therefore, please let me, your handsome, mustachioed leader, allow me to just take care of it. Um, I have a plan here. And you can see everything I talked about earlier in Hitler's ascendancy. There is a cult of personality around him. He is the Fuhrer, right? There's pictures of him looking stern and strong, and he stands for you, the German people. He's the embodiment of the German people. Um, and you can hear the language that I, I mentioned earlier. You can always tell a populist movement by the fact that it's couched in the terms of fighting and struggle and war, because it is almost always revolutionary, like I said. Well, what's Hitler's book called? Mein Kampf. My struggle. Now, this is the, exactly the language I'm talking about. It, it is your struggle too. We are all in a fight and a struggle against the Jews to take back our country and become great. Um, this is complete populist garbage, right? So when you hear people talking about fighting and this, that, or the other is the enemy of the people, which will sound familiar to you, and we'll get to that later, uh, you know that this is just the same kind of populist, strongman, cult of personality garbage that is used to whip people up and prey upon them. Because as long as the leader is talking like this, he's becoming your hero. He's going to fight for you. You might not be interested in going out and getting in fisticuffs with an ethnic outgroup in the middle of the street, but don't worry, the leader's going to take care of it for you. He's going to screw those people over and get them out of your life, and then, trust me, he's so strong and capable, everything's going to be just fine for you after that because you're on his team. Right. Well, if you fall for that, you're a fool because, like I said, all you're going to get is winding up being that guy's servant at the end of the day. You know, he's, he is pathologically addicted to bullying people 
And once he's done bullying the people that he has recruited you into hating, and those people are gone, well, who's next? It's you. It always is. That's why I said earlier, I think calling yourself a populist is basically like saying you're a rube, you're a dupe. You know, you're somebody who is willfully uh, having a trick played on them because you're letting a person or a political movement prey on sort of your inability to think for yourself and your willingness to just feel like, yeah, I'm a normal guy and my life's not perfect. It must be somebody else's fault. It, hey, it's those people's fault. That's right. Let's go get them. Um, one of the great tricks I should mention, you know, before we move on here, that a, a populist leader will often use is to cast the enemy, right, the outgroup from the common man, the populist class. The outgroup is both a completely moronic, brutish, evil, stupid, almost animal level, uh, dumb group of people, right? Like they're, they're always just inept and stupid and filthy, while at the same time being clever, conniving, manipulative, right? Pulling all the strings behind your back. They rule the world. But there are also these animal, dumb, rat, vermin, you know, like you could see the terms that Hitler used to, to talk about the Jews. And it was this, this exact thing embodied, right? They're vermin, they're rats, they're filthy. But at the same time, they're clever, they're sneaky, they run the show, they're manipulative. It's like, well, I can't tell if you think these people are geniuses or uh, not even human. They're just a dumb animal. Make up your mind. But that, they, they can't make up their mind because they need them to be both. They have to have this contradiction implanted in their followers because if you cast a group of people as just dirty, right, or dumb, well, the human instinct is to feel bad for them, right? When we see uncontacted tribes in the Amazon, the first thing you usually think is, I wonder how long these people live. I feel bad for them. You know, like if you live in the jungle and have no dentist, well, a, a case of tooth decay could lead to your death, right? I feel bad for them. Yes, they're dirty. They, they don't have indoor plumbing. And uh, yes, they're ignorant. They live in the woods. They've never read a book in their lives, and they have no contact with the outside world. But those things alone are not enough to hate somebody. Being dirty, being ignorant, um, and being an outsider isn't enough. You also have to cast them as manipulative and conniving, right? They're, they're not just dirty. And they're not just ignorant, but they're also doing things behind your back. They're running the world's banks, right? They're eating your babies. They have a ritual where they drink the blood of babies. This is a common theme in populist movements. Uh, the outgroup is always pedophiles or they're drinking the blood of children. This is extremely common all over the world in populist movements. Um, it's rarely ever true, right? Jews do not drink the blood of babies. Um, I mean, maybe one has some time, but it has nothing to do with him being Jewish, if he did, that's just a weird guy. Um, you can see even in, in America, which again, we'll talk about at the end, uh, the QAnon movement, the Trump movement, saying the Democrats are running pedophile rings and that they drink the blood of babies. That is literally one of their theories uh, in that movement. And it's a, it's a theory as old as time. It's actually one thing that I was able to very early on identify <laughs> that this was going to be a populist uprising is when that language starts coming around, you know what comes next, right? The Jews drink the blood of babies. Next, we have the Holocaust and a totalitarian fascist regime in power swept in on a populist movement, which, again, wasn't good for the average German. So think about this. There's the myth that, like, well, at least under Hitler, the trains ran on time. Who gives a shit about the trains? And that might not even be true. What we do know 
is that that society was a nightmare to live in, right? Men and boys, and at the end, even old men and very little boys, conscripted into the military to go fight and die for one man's vanity and millions of others killed just for who they are because they're the outgroup. That's populism for you. That's where this stuff winds up. And to give you an example, uh, I, I actually think this is a fascinating story. Um, we all know about Nazi Germany. We've all gone over communist Russia, communist China, North Korea, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard that stuff before. But there's another country with a fascinating history of populism that I bet you haven't thought too much about, and that is Peru. Peru. So in the 1980s, there was a political movement by Marxists, Leninists, communists uh, called Shining Path. Now, Shining Path was founded uh, back in 1969 by a man named Abimel Guzman, who was a former university philosophy professor, um, but he became known uh, sort of by his nom de guerre, Presidente Gonzalo. Now, he was a populist leader that appealed to left-wing folks in Peru, um, and he started sort of a communist populist uprising. Now, Peru is an interesting country because a lot of it is very rural outside of the cities, obviously. There's a lot of jungle land, and it's very mountainous. It's in the Andes. So there are parts of Peru that are extremely remote, difficult to get to, a lot of dirt roads winding up through mountains to small, tiny little communities, uh, a lot of sort of tropical rainforest that guerrilla fighters could disappear into and stay gone for weeks, if not months, and strike at random in different little towns and at different little communities. So the teachings of Presidente Gonzalo, Abimeo Guzman, his real name, of course, um, eventually became more and more militant as his, as his following grew, um, again, called the Shining Path was what this group was called. So Guzman believed that communism required a popular war in order to, to assert itself in society and win. And he sort of made himself unique because he distanced himself from organizing uh, workers, which is a typical communist leader thing to do, right? It all starts with the workers, usually, when it comes to communism. But uh, Abimeo Guzman, Presidente Gonzalo, I think I'm just going to call him Presidente Gonzalo from now on uh, so that we don't have the confusion of going back and forth. So his nom de guerre, you know, the name that he went by as a communist leader was Presidente Gonzalo. Well, Gonzalo didn't really care about organizing workers. He believed that what we needed here was a war. It all had to start with revolution. Is this all sounding familiar with populism? Um, in around 1980, uh, Shining Path held a series of secret meetings, and these were known as the Central Committee's Second Plenary. It formed a revolutionary directorate that was a political and military sort of organization outside of the actual government of Peru. So this was sort of an insurgency that started here. Uh, it had collected militias from its followers and organized them. And they basically dispersed these armed, you know, militia revolutionary folks to different areas and different provinces of Peru to start the struggle. That's 1980. So what happens throughout the rest of the 80s is something that's become known since then as the People's War. So what Shining Path would do is they would essentially show up out of nowhere in these jungle towns, sometimes in mining camps, right? They would attack uh, industries, so timber industries, mines, a means of production, right, that the communists always want to control deep in the jungles of Peru and up in the mountains and stuff. They would show up out of nowhere one day, heavily armed, and just overtake like a logging camp. 
And then what had happened is they would find out who the supervisors were and who the managers were. They would take them, they would line them up, and they would kill them. And then they would tell the workers, you own this factory now. Here, here's a gun. Here's a machete. You're now one of us. You're part of the shining path. We are taking this country over. And to prove it, we've just killed your boss. There's no one to tell you what to do now except for us. You're one of us, and this factory now belongs to Shining Path, which means it belongs to you. Or really, you know, sort of how we talked about earlier, this factory belongs to you now, which means it belongs to Shining Path because you've just been pressed into service for the Shining Path. So already the workers, like these people are usually poor, uneducated, you know, hard laborers. They don't really understand what's going on. All they know is they're going to keep going to work at this lumber yard or this mining camp every day, only now... Instead of handing over their goods to their former bosses and the capitalists and sometimes foreign investment companies that would own these operations, they're handing them over to this terrorist guerrilla group uh, known as Shining Path, who now claims that they are in charge of the area and they are the new government. Well, unfortunately, it's always these folks in situations like this who wind up losing out when there are two groups of authorities who both claim uh, to have control over a certain area. Um, you're suddenly forced to choose between two masters or try to serve both at once. And that's what would happen. Shining Path would come in and do something like this. And then they would leave. They would leave certain workers in charge, right? Everyone, you know, people would get guns and machetes and sometimes even just like table knives. You know, this is a very poor person's revolution and say, you are now in charge of running this camp. You are the new officer for Shining Path here, Mario, or whatever your name might be. Uh, we are all now going to leave, and you will run this camp, and we will be back in a month to collect the profit and check in on everything. And then the Shining Path gorillas would disappear back into the jungle. Well, these people usually would just try to do exactly that. I mean, if armed folks show up and tell you that they're in control now, uh, and then they walk away and no one else shows up, well, most of these people just assume that that was true. They didn't really have a lot of contact with the outside world. They didn't know what was really going on. And so they'd say, okay, I guess this is a Shining Path factory. Well, a couple weeks would go by and the Peruvian military would come in and they would learn that all these supervisors and managers of this factory had been murdered. And now here's these workers working for Shining Path. And now guess what? The people that Shining Path appointed as lieutenants and as new party members to run this place, now they're under arrest and potentially being executed by the Peruvian military. So again, these are the folks who lose, right? They don't know who to please. They're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. It just depends on who comes out of the jungle with a gun that day. If it's the Shining Path guerrillas, okay, great. Now, you know, we're, we're, we're still working for you, I guess. If it's the Peruvian military, well, shit, now we've joined Shining Path and now we're the enemy to them. All we want to do is work in this mining camp and be left alone, but that can't happen. This went on for years in Peru, and it wasn't just the means of production that were being attacked. It was villages, too. There's a lot of classic stories here about Shining Path would show up in a village one day. They'd find out who was in charge of that village, whatever Peruvian government official, even if it's sometimes just a guy with an unloaded revolver and a soiled, uh, you know, uniform would be the only Peruvian government presence for 100 square miles, right? Well, they'd find that guy, march him into the middle of the street and cut his head off in front of everybody to symbolically say the Peruvian government does not run this town anymore, right? This guy who collects your taxes and does the policing is now a head on the street and a lifeless body laying in the dirt. This is a shining path town now. And what we're going to do is bring some missing justice. So tomorrow, everybody line up in the town square, and we're going to hear some grievances from you folks, and we're going to bring some justice to this town, finally. 
And so what would happen is the next day, sure enough, all the villagers would line up in the town square and the Shining Path guerrillas would sit there with their leadership, you know, their commander, and sort of hold a weird sort of court out in the open where villagers would come and give their grievances to the Shining Path and say, uh, this guy stole my donkey last summer. You know, this guy over here named Jorge stole my donkey and I still haven't seen it back. I think he killed that donkey. And I want money, you know, I want justice. And then they would go to Jorge and he would say, I borrowed his donkey, I gave it back to him and it died naturally and he's trying to extort money from me. And so these people, they basically would dig up these weird petty grievances in these small towns between neighbors, right? People who should be getting along, but of course we always have our small disagreements with people. Shining Path would dig this up between people and then they would make a ruling very quickly. You know what it sounds like? You do owe that guy money for that donkey, but it's too late to pay. We're going to kill you now. We're going to show everybody in this town how serious we are about justice. And this poor man, who may or may not have stolen a donkey or let it die, would just be killed, and often in horrible manners. They did things like they would boil people alive right in front of the whole town, chop off limbs and hands, shoot them in the head, whatever. Like Every medieval, disgusting, horrible way you can imagine of dying. The Shining Path guerrillas took a delight in this because it struck fear into the heart of the people who they were trying to assert authority over. Um, and so once again, you know, they would sweep into these towns after these trials were concluded after a day or two. You know, there'd be a dozen dead folks, people executed, and then they would say, OK, justice has been served here. You know, don't forget that the Shining Path uh, means order, right? Everything is ordered and just under us. We've taken care of your problems. Your criminals are now gone. And just remember... You're a communist now. And what would they do? They'd find somebody in town and say, you're the new Shining Path party member in this town. Congratulations. Here's a machete, right? If anybody gets out of order, you whack them with this. And next time we come back, you know, we'll give you another raise. And so it's the same thing as the factories. And then sure enough, what would happen? Well, a couple weeks later, the Peruvian army would come through, you know, and again, these people are really no more wealthy or well-equipped than the Shining Path guerrillas. These are just poor folks from other parts of, of Peru who have joined the military and been given a uh, a hardly functioning service weapon and another soiled uniform and sent out to patrol the jungle. So then this group of people would come into the town and figure out, well, what happened here? Where's our party official? You know, where's, you know, Deputy Gonzalez was here. And they'd say, oh, Shining Path guerrillas came and killed him. Uh, now the new guy that runs the town is him over there. And sure enough, they'd figure out, well, this guy's now just working with Shining Path. Well, we have to send a message to the town that if anybody ever agrees for, to a promotion from Shining Path, we're going to kill them. So we're going to kill this guy. Now this guy's dead too, except it's the Peruvian army killing him. So you could see that this is just a nightmare going back and forth. And it all started from a populist communist movement. Well, eventually Peru got really, really sick of this stuff. You know, this was a bloody time in their history. Um, and the weird thing is that 50% of the combatants here were women. This was like an all-encompassing societal problem. You know, we had... Shining Path members coming out of the woods that were 50-year-old women with pistols or machetes and committing these murders alongside the men. And then they would disappear again. And these, the Peruvian government chased them around for nearly a decade until, in 1990, another populist leader entered the picture. Now, this guy's name was Alberto Fujimori. He took office in 1990, like I said, mostly based on promises that he was going to clean up this Shining Path situation and restore order to Peru for the right-wing conservative uh, folks of Peru who were really sick of this, you know, these communist terrorists running around their jungles and killing people. 
So he did exactly that. You know, Alberto Fujimori became an extremely popular populist figure, uh, sort of cult of personality quickly formed around him as he led brutal reprisals against Shining Path and did actually stamp them out for the most part. But he didn't stop there. Uh, he went absolutely crazy sending like right-wing death squads into poor neighborhoods to execute people. There's a famous thing called the Barrio Saltos Massacre, where a death squad sent by Fujimori stormed a neighborhood barbecue and just indiscriminately killed people, uh, including children and women, on the grounds that there might have been some communists there. So imagine having a block party and a couple trucks pull up and men in balaclavas with AK-47s get out and just start mowing everyone down, right? In the name of cleaning up our country, us versus them. We're going to get these communists out of here. This is kind of the danger of the war on terror type stuff. Um, so this got ugly really quickly, but the people who, who were anti-communist and didn't like Shining Path, which was a lot of them, rightly, soon were sucking up to this guy, and he became just as bad as Shining Path was just for the other side. Extremely corrupt. Uh, lots of human rights abuses took place under him, and in fact... Things got so bad and President Fujimori wound up in so much trouble that in the year 2000, he left the country on a business trip to Japan and faxed his resignation letter back to Peru. He's <laughs> basically a fugitive because he was wanted for all of these, you know, human rights abuses and war crimes, essentially. He was eventually brought back to Peru. You know, he wasn't allowed to stay in Japan. And uh, over a series of trials over the next several years, he was found guilty of several different crimes like this. The other thing he was responsible for is a forced sterilization campaign um, against the sort of indigenous population of Peru. This, again, was a populist movement. It's us versus them. These dirty native people who are just a pain in our ass and they tend to belong to Shining Path because it appeals to them. These people are the problem. Well, I know how to get rid of them. Let's just start sterilizing all of them. That's a very sort of Nazi-style thing to do, don't you think? Ethnic purity. We talked about that being a big buzzword for a right-wing populist movement. So because of this and because of these massacres, uh, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. No longer the president. What's interesting here is he is still beloved by a lot of people in Peru. Um, there is sort of a thing called Fujimoriism, <laughs> which is like you know, Reaganism or Trumpism or any of these other isms that we uh, give leaders that have huge followings with their own personal ideals of how the government should run. Well, he was a very, very hardcore right-wing guy that believed in sterilizations, mass killings, and war crimes to rid his country of, uh, of the other side, of the guerrilla group, and of indigenous people as well. So 25 years in prison. Well, it's interesting, this year, 2021, there was a presidential election in Peru. And who ran? Kiko Fujimori, President Fujimori's eldest daughter. Extremely popular for the same reason. It's almost like a Kim family in North Korea type dynasty in Peru. The right wing folks love the Fujimori family. They want them back. They don't care about Kiko's resume outside of simply being her father's daughter. And who did she run against? She ran against a Marxist from the jungle named Pedro Castillo. Pedro Castillo is a school teacher, right? He's not, never been a politician, never worked in government. He's a sort of Marxist-Leninist school teacher. So we have here again in Peru in 2021, all these years later, still happening, the same exact partisans fighting it out. The right-wing uh, faction of Peru led by the Fujimori lovers and the jungle-dwelling workers' party-type people who are Marxists. 
Now, this was an extremely close election in Peru, but Pedro Castillo, the Marxist, won. He won this election. Uh, he is also considered to be sort of a populist leader. He is somebody who comes from nothing and stands for the people. It's a little young in his career to see where this leads, and I don't know much about him outside of the fact that he just won and this history that I've laid out for you. But it will be very curious to see where he goes with this victory. It should be worth noting that Kiko Fujimori has called the election illegitimate and alleged fraud and basically done all of the things that we've seen our own right-wing politicians here do when they lose. Uh, she's been trying to take this through the courts, and so far, everybody has affirmed Pedro Castillo won legitimately, lady. Deal with it. Um, but there is a large swath of Peruvian folk who want her father released from prison, and if they can't have him, they'd rather have her, and they are absolutely furious that a Marxist would become the president there. Now, he's not a communist communist. Uh, Pedro Castillo seems to want to be more of a social democrat, um, or a democratic socialist. Those are slightly different things, by the way. I'm not going to get into that here, but people sort of interchange those terms. They're not quite the same. One is more of a communist and one is more of a Western-style, you know, Democrat. Anyway, people are not happy with Pedro Castillo, uh, but it does appear that he won and he does have the power now. And it's been an interesting thing to watch. He has refused to move into the presidential palace because it is uh, situated on the site of uh, the conquistador Pizarro, you know, who basically is a bit of a boogeyman to the Peruvian people, but also the founder of their sort of aristocratic society there. You know, a lot of the upper echelon of that world trace their lineage back to Spanish conquistadors. Um, but anyway, so he won't live in the presidential palace. Instead, he just wants to work in town, I think, like setting up his offices at the convention center or something like that. Very populist move, right? He's saying, like, I'm not too good to still go to a normal office like the rest of you and run this country. I don't need to be elevated into this luscious palace. You know, I'm a farm guy from the middle of the jungle. He wears a white, like, cowboy-style hat. It's a specific Peruvian hat, but that's what it looks like. Uh, and dresses kind of like a farmer in a farmer's finest. You know, not dirty overalls or anything, but, you know, farmer attire, just clean. So that's his image, and that's his thing. He's having a lot of trouble filling his cabinet now, apparently, because he really only wants to deal with people he knows personally. And these people tend to be sort of like small town folk, you know, university folk from the school that he used to teach at. Um, we'll see where it goes. You know, the guy just got into office. But I would say, as a populist, keep your eye on him, Peru. You know, will this guy deliver for you? Or is he somebody who's just positioned himself to be your proxy for the everyman, and now he's going to benefit from it? It's very encouraging to see that he's refusing to, leave, to live in the palace. I think that's a good start. Hopefully it lasts. Um, that brings us to America. Now, I said at the beginning, we've had our populists here too. What's interesting about America is I think We've had two populist presidents within both of our lifetimes, like almost certainly, unless you're very, very, very young. President Obama was sort of an unwitting populist in a lot of ways. And then, of course, Donald Trump is the classic right-wing populist. So I'll talk about Obama first, and I'll talk about Trump, and then I'll tell you why I think these two populist movements were a little bit different from one another and why one of them wound up being pretty harmless and the other one wound up nearly destroying our country and still may. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with Obama. Obama came to power in a populist uprising after the 2008 financial 
uh, crisis. Uh, that time was also a time when our country was fraught with anger and fear and anxiety over our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, people were already sick of them. Little did we know how much longer they were actually going to go on, right? I think the last troop just left Afghanistan like yesterday, and it's 2021. But back in 2008, we had been fighting these wars for oof, six to eight years, uh, six to seven years maybe, and we were sick of it, you know? And George W. Bush and the Republicans, who were Barack Obama's sort of you know, predecessors here from the other party, people were just sick of their leadership. We didn't like what they had done. They had taken us into these long, expensive wars that were producing very little outcome for us. Uh, at that point, we still hadn't even found Osama bin Laden. And they had basically uh, deregulated the financial industry to the point where the whole system fell apart. So we'd all had enough of them. And Barack Obama came along as a young, handsome man who was a college professor turned senator. You know, he had been a senator, I think, for one term, I want to say, in Illinois. And this is a guy who we didn't really have a lot of background on. He hadn't been in the public eye for very long. And yet, he was able to sort of engender this enormous cult-like following uh, with the same sorts of images that you see in other populist leaders' revolutionary movements, right? We all know the hope uh, poster with its Obama's face, and we've got these catchphrases like hope and change and all that stuff. Without Obama ever really having to lay out too much of a game plan, it was a lot of charisma for his first run and a lot of really good propaganda for him. Uh, the guy didn't have much of a track record to run on, so he ran on hope, change. We're going to make things different. We're going to come after these bankers that have crashed our economy. We're going to deal with all this crap in the Middle East that these elite sort of deep state government officials have done. That was just the general tone of what he wanted to say. And it really resonated with people back then. He was incredibly good at being the common man who's going to return your country to you from these bankers who have been, you know, acting like pirates and looting us. Uh, and we were all very on board with that. Now, Barack Obama actually went on to become a pretty even-keeled president, probably in large part due to the fact that he was so polarizing, being a black man, uh, that he really walked a fine line and really was always cautious with his words once he became the president and never wanted to rock the boat too much. You know, he didn't really pull us out of our wars in the Middle East. In fact, he doubled down on some of that stuff to a lot of people's surprise and to some people's chagrin. But one thing he did was respect the institution of democracy. And after his second term, he was ready to leave office, right? And hand it over. Now, did he deliver on hope and change? It depends on who you ask. I think it was certainly a lot of change from the George W. Bush administration in, in most ways. It was a change from the financial wreckage that they left behind. Obama pulled us out of that and gave us a pretty great economy with his administration's policies. Did he fundamentally change who America is or how we treat each other or anything like that? I don't think so. No, I think he gave us hope that we can elect diverse presidents. And I think he did a really good job shepherding the country through a tough time. And then he, you know, stepped down when his time was up, which is what we expect. Now, the reason I think Barack Obama's populist movement did not end in an autocratic dictator or anything particularly ugly is simply the fact that it skipped the step of nastiness uh, that a lot of populism falls into, right? The combative language was sort of missing from his campaign. It was all based on positive ideas, right? 
instead of saying, fuck the bank, we're going to go storm down there and hang all these Wall Street traders, you know, from the light poles <laughs> of uh, southern Manhattan. No, it was just like hope, you know, let's have hope that we can make things better. Change. Why don't we change a few things around here? It was not revolutionary talk. It was not violent talk. It was very easygoing. Now, the Trump campaign, on the other hand, is a classic populist movement of the other sort. Uh, we heard so much talk about these people are the enemy. These people are devils. You know, the media who tells the truth about me, they're the enemy of the people. No, sir, they're the enemy of you because you are an asshole. Um, that, that, but that's the thing, right? It's like if you are going to become the catalyst as the icon of your populist movement, you are the person who embodies everybody. Well, when the press is mean to you, it's very easy to sell to them that that's the press being mean to all of us. Like if you're if you stand for us, Donald Trump, if you are the guy who embodies the hopes and needs of the common man, well then the press attack when it, and then the press attacks you, they're attacking us. Now of course I don't believe that, but it was easy for him to sell that to his followers. Any criticism of me is a criticism of you. And the elite in this case, in his case, was the media. It's the coastal liberals who run the media. It's Hollywood. It's the deep state Democrats. It's all these people that you can just easily see. This is classic populism. I'm going to tell you that you're the normal one. And all of these evil outside group people are conspiring against you. And I'm going to stand up to them and kick their ass. All right? I'm going to put them in their place. And when I'm in charge of the government, it's going to be for you, <clears throat> not for them. I'm going to drain the swamp, right? That kind of talk. Well, we can see very clearly that Donald Trump, again, just like all these other guys we talked about, did not really do anything for the American people. And if anything good happened for them, it was clearly by accident. Donald Trump assumed the presidency to enrich himself and to engage in corrupt behavior that benefited him and his businesses. Uh, that much is obvious. Now, how much crazier that would have gotten if he had gotten another term? One can only imagine. Because you can see... He doesn't care about America. The moment that he lost an election, he was willing to burn this whole place down, all of our institutions and traditions and laws out the window because it, they're inconvenient for him personally. That is a true populist leader. He needs you to need him. You know, he needs you to serve him. He pretends that he's there fighting for you, but really, he just needs your popular vote so that he can enrich and better himself. Like at the end of the day, Donald Trump getting into office doesn't drain any swamp. It doesn't get rid of the government. It just gives it to him to abuse and toy with as he sees fit. You know, your taxes didn't go away. <laughs> nothing went, nothing Donald Trump said he was gonna tear down got torn down, except for all the things that we didn't want tearing, torn down to begin with, right? Our democracy, our decency, our way of treating one another. Um, all of those went out the window because those made it tough for him to be himself. This is the danger of populism, guys. And this is why I say, don't identify with it, right? If you see this type of language and you can identify this type of political movement coming your way, you should run the other way, right? Turn around and run in the opposite direction. This is not something you want to be a part of because you are being fooled. Donald Trump is a con man. Hitler was a con man. Stalin was a con man. All these people used populist, populist movements to make their own lives better and to take power. And nobody benefited but them. That is almost always the case. 
In fact, the Obama case is rare, and I think that the only reason it didn't end that way is because it came with a tone of positivity. And we're also lucky that the leader of this movement himself was a principled human being who, even after eight years in power, knew, knew when his time to go came that he would go and he would hand over power to the next person. And he's a man who believes in the institutions. Did he want to regulate banking and stuff? Yes, yes. But these were much milder revolutionary terms than uh, talking in terms of immigration and religion and all of these things that are hot button issues, right? Race. Yeah, well, populist movements based on any of those things tend to turn bloody really fast. There's nothing more important to a lot of people than their race or their religion or their family. And if you can make them feel that there's a threat to any one of those things, you can get them to turn violent very easily. It's a little bit more heady and intellectual to have a populist movement angry at the way mortgages work. <laughs> you know what I mean? A little less likely to end in bloodshed than, say, pitting Muslims against Christians or uh, immigrants against natives. You know, um, these are things that are much easier to make people hurt each other over. <clears throat> And that is why I brought up the example of Shining Path and went into all that detail, you know, the whole history of Peru, uh, of all the atrocities that took place there. Because the point is that I'm making here in this whole episode, when you have a movement that is based on us and them, in-group and out-group, it doesn't always lead to violence, but it has a strong tendency towards that. You're playing with fire. You're driving down the highway without a seatbelt. Does that always lead to death? No, but it's very dangerous and it very well, you know, it could. <laughs> More than if you didn't. This is the danger of populism. Us and them. The reason Peru, I thought, was a good example is because you've seen populist leaders come from both sides, right? The Shining Path uh, guerrilla, you know, communist movement was a populist movement led by Presidente Gonzalo, a populist leader. Uh, that turned very bloody very quickly because it was able to dehumanize people like business owners and capitalists and the Peruvian government. And once you dehumanize somebody, it's very easy to hurt them and kill them. And then, of course, it swung the other way, the populist uprising of the Fujimori family, who, because they were able to galvanize that side of Peru against Shining Path and communists, found it very easy to brutalize them and you know enact death squads and sterilizations, right? And you can see, like I said, even to today, we still have Fujimori running against Marxist populists, you know, populists on both sides with very close elections. And what happens? Well, because each side sort of views the other side as vermin. Now we're calling election integrity into question here. It should be very interesting to you that the same exact thing that's been plaguing Peru for decades is only just begun in the United States, right? Populist uprisings, dehumanizing the other side, calling elections into question, um, seeing the other side as no longer human beings, not people. They're the outgroup. They're the other. They are not people that we need to work with or find compromise with, but people who are to be defeated, right? Yeah, it's also telling, too, that you can see uh, populist leaders arise often from the institution that the other sort of populist hates. And what I mean by that is Pedro Castillo was a school teacher. Barack Obama was a university professor. Well, that's the exact institution, academia, the right-wing populism hates. Conversely, a lot of right-wing populists themselves, right-wing populist leaders, come from institutions like religion, the banking industry, right? All the things that a left-wing populist hates. So fascinating to see how this plays out. And I guess the warning to us in our country, at least, 
is pay attention to Peru and the decades of the pendulum swinging back and forth and the violence that comes with populist uprising after populist uprising with no middle of the road and no compromise. Anyway, so it's because of this that I, I just heard this person describe themselves as a populist. And I said, I should probably explain this to people because I bet they're not the only one out there saying, yeah, I'm a populist. This is great. You know, I'm just all about the common man and, uh, and this guy who speaks for us. Don't go down that road, my friend. Anyway, um, that's kind of all there is to it, right? Like populism is just inherently negative. It's based on antagonism and it's based on pitting neighbor against neighbor instead of finding ways to work together. Like it's, it's always lame and cheesy when somebody runs on a message of inclusivity rather than exclusivity, but that is what we should be really striving for and looking at because we live in a diverse world now. Uh, even countries like Japan, right, which are typically thought of as pretty homogeneous, have other races, religions, and peoples living there, right? There are very few countries in the world that aren't sort of diverse and mixed, uh, at least in some way. And so inclusivity should be the goal because exclusivity inevitably leads to somebody getting hurt and to some bloodshed and to, honestly, human rights abuses and social inequality. So populism, by its very nature, is a bad idea in the modern world. It, it, it only exists in an us-versus-them scenario, and that is inherently going to lead to conflict. So if the goal here is not to have conflict, but to create a peaceful world where everybody prospers, populism is never the answer. And populist leaders should be laughed at and kicked out of the room. <laughs> That's my view on this. Okay, guys, well, I hope that uh, sheds some light on at least my view of populism. If you have a different one, put it in the comments. Otherwise, uh, have a good one, and uh, I look forward to our next little chat here on, what did I call it? La Mofeta de Skunk. Adios. <laughs>